Well, what is up, Substance? Make some noise. Wherever you're at, you made it to church, and you are looking good. If we haven't met yet, I'm Pastor Peter, and of course, we are in week three of our teaching series called History Maker. And of course, we're just really what we're talking about is how to get in alignment with God. I, uh, the, the whole series kind of came about, I, I, over the last couple of months, I've been speaking at a lot of pastor's conferences and somebody asked me, hey, what do you teach on at these conferences? And I, and I, I, I was like, you know, what are you telling pastors around the world? And uh, I've literally spoken to almost 4,000 pastors in the last, uh, I don't know, three months. And uh, I, you know, a lot of different topics, but I, I share a lot of different research on what is going on in the global church. And uh, somebody was like, well, when are you going to share that substance? And I'm like, that's a great question. You know, like, I, and then let's do it. Let's just do it. And so uh, really what we've been doing is just how to get into alignment with what, the, what are the bigger things God is doing around the world. And so today I want to jump into a verse that does just that. It creates alignment. God's word allows us to realign with his heart. And in some ways, the verse that I'm about to share with you is one of the more radical things that Jesus said. In fact, it was so radical, he had to repeat it three times in the sermon that he shared it. And I, I just, I, so listen up. Jesus actually said, Luke 15, verse 7, this is just one little synopsis of that section. If you read the whole section of, of Luke 15, he goes into three different stories to explain it. But the gist is this, okay? So this is the nutshell version. Jesus says, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent, okay? So he's really talking about heaven's priorities. If you really want to know what God values, if you really want to know how God thinks, if you really want to move heaven, and, and I don't know about you, but there's a million people out there that could use a little more favor in their lives. And if you want to get favor in your life, well, let's move God. Let's, let's move his heart. If you really want to know what gets God's heart beating, what gets God's heart passionate, Jesus is outlining it, saying right here, heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent, okay? So he, he's, again, he, he's saying, if you really want to know what moves the heart of God, it's not intense worship experiences, although that does move God's heart. But if you, disproportionately, one sinner repenting, is even more. It's not even our, our prayer meetings. It's not even all of our, all the things that Christians do to come together and, and, and meet with each other. Those things are great. God loves those things. But actually, it's our evangelism. It comes down to one thing. Do we help people who do not know God to know him? And, and so if you're out there today and you needed favor from heaven today and you wanted to get into alignment with heaven's provisions, well, Jesus is giving us a giant clue. Start valuing heaven's priorities. Heaven's priorities gets us into alignment with heaven's provisions. And I don't know about you, what you need today, but I, I could use a lot of things. I could use more insight. I could use more health in my body. I could use, you know, just a healthy family. And so, I, I, like, I want to get into alignment with heaven. And so it begs the question, well, why? Why would heaven have that priority? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but I, uh, with all this in mind, let me just prove to you why you and I are living in the greatest time in history. 
We truly, truly, truly are living in the greatest time in history. And I know a lot of people like to kind of whine about our time in history. I think, oh no, this is the greatest time ever in history. Almost every year at Substance, I always bust out a little line graph that's illustrating what's happening with population around the earth right now. Most people don't realize this, but we are living in the greatest population boom in all of human history, okay? So, uh, and and let me just just show you this. This is a a, a line graph that, that goes all the way back to zero, okay? So uh, the beginning of, of the common era, okay? So we talk about BC, AD, or the common era, okay? Starting at zero, going all the way up to, it ends at 2050. These are just projections, but actually it's proving out to be true, okay? What, what's interesting is in the times of Christ, there were only 200 million people on earth, Okay, so uh, that, um, that, that's the, the closest estimation that scholars can, can come up with, and, and that's how it stayed primarily throughout almost all of human history all the way up until the 1800s was an inflection point, okay? And of course, what happened in the 1800s? Well, we could talk about the rise of, of modern science. We could talk about a million things. Uh, but notice, from right about 1950 onward, okay, this was another huge inflection point. The population exploded from about 2 billion to about 8 billion, okay? So, uh, we're, like, I mean, it's, it's exploding right now. In fact, the earth is undergo- undergoing the largest population boom ever, especially in places like India. And of course, right now, I, you know, if you were to look at this line graph through spiritual eyes, if you were to look at it through the eyes of heaven and, and why has God placed us on the earth in this moment, okay? Because God has determined the time set for us in the exact places where we would live, Acts 7 to 1. 1726. So why? God, what is your purpose for me? Okay, if God valued evangelism and missions when there was only a half, you know, billion people less than a half billion people on earth, how much more during the greatest population boom in all of human history? I mean, I'm just saying, okay, let me put it this way. What kind of church is heaven going to resource right now in light of that? Okay, it's going to be the church that prioritizes what heaven prioritizes. One, one person who needs to repent versus 99 righteous shouting at the top of their lungs. And, and so research, here's, here's the contrast though, okay? Research shows that less than 50% of America's churches even reached a single convert last year. And it's actually worse than that. It's, less, it's probably less than 40% of churches even reached a singular, we're talking about the entirety of the church not being able to reach a single person and then even, you know, I mean, think about that. In fact, right now, since COVID, evangelism has actually gone into a nosedive. Part of that is because during COVID, um, people tend to go to, uh, they tend to, sw- they, there was a lot of people that switched churches. There was actually about 15% of the American population switched to a church that politically agrees with themselves a little bit more. Okay, which usually the churches became more homogenous. The more homogenous a church is, generally the less effective it is with the Great Commission, right? Because if you surround yourself with everybody who agrees with you, uh, there's, no, there's no conversation. There's no tension. The tension is actually what drives people into the scriptures, you see. So the, the problem is, is it's, it's had a very negative effect on evangelism. In fact, even the churches that are growing, 
Less than 2.2% of them, of the churches that are growing, only 2.2% of them are growing by conversions. And so we're talking about a fraction of a fraction that is actually fulfilling the Great Commission. Yet all churches are spending money. You know what I'm saying? All churches are spending energy. All churches are spending effort. I would actually argue that 90% of the churches out there that believe in the Great Commission that aren't fulfilling it, they're busy. But the problem is, is they're busy with the wrong things. And, and, and why, okay? So, well, the, the simple answer, in my opinion, is just bad methodology, okay? A lot of Christians just aren't aware of what is happening in the global church, nor do they understand what causes these things to happen. And so this last week, I started sharing three behaviors of a history-making church. All of these things are, are, are not just in the scripture, but they can be validated by data and missiology and uh, they are, there's millions of examples in church history that can illustrate it. And by the end, we're going to have seven behaviors. But before I share number four today, I, I want to show you one more graphic that'll tweak your mind. Okay, so again, I'm, I'm just showing you research that will cause you to have a different filter through which to read scripture. Okay, and, and so um, actually, okay, so before, where is it? Where is it? I lost it. Oh, here it is. Right here. Okay, so, okay, this, this, little, this little image right here, okay, three behaviors. Now, this is, this is the age in which people become uh, Christian. Studies show that 85% of people who convert to Christianity do so in the eight, between the ages of 4 and 14. It is the greatest window of evangelism in a person's life. I don't know why. We could talk about a million reasons. Maybe they're more open. Uh, you know, kids, you know, unless you become like a child, you won't inherit the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, right? So ages 4 to 14, 85% of all Christians on the earth gave their lives to Christ between that age category, okay? So w what does that say? Now, it, it I mean, it, it could tell us a lot of things. First off, I've, I've shared here at Substance a lot that the number one predictor of spiritual growth is how many Christian friends you have. And so, uh, like, if you really think about it, uh, you know, if, if a church does not have an amazing kids ministry with critical mass in the kids ministry where, where kids can have a lot of other Christian friends, then chances are they're not going to fulfill the Great Commission. You can take that one stat alone and predict which churches are going to be effective with the Great Commission long term. Okay, now there's a lot of other stats that you can use to predict this. Okay, the second most demographically uh, significant age category is 18 to 21 year olds are the next Next reception, okay, on this graph, uh, 15 to 30% gave their lives to Christ, or I mean 10% gave their lives to Christ between ages of 15 and 30, but specifically 18 to 21-year-olds were the most receptive to the gospel. And of course, you know, I, like there's, we could debate a million reasons why that is, be it adolescent psychology, adolescent development, I don't know. Don't get me wrong, people do give their lives to Christ outside of those two windows, as you can see. Um, but usually, they, if they do give their lives to Christ, it's during a crisis. In other words, they have a major identity crisis, a major medical diagnosis, somebody dies, and they start thinking about the fragility of life. In other words, it's a crisis that drives people to Christ outside of those little windows, okay? So now, um, here's, here's why this will, here's why this, this window matters, okay? Four, we call it the 4 to 14 window and the 18 to 21 year old window. 
Now, the reason why that matters is because whenever churches target those two windows, they have a dramatic increase of the following four things. They have dramatically more conversion growth. Okay, so there's something about targeting those two age groups. In fact, actually, uh, so more baby growth, if you don't know what that means, uh, then uh, when college students, you know, get saved, they find their spouse, and guess what happens? Magic. Okay, and if you don't know how that happens, talk to your campus pastor after today. Okay, the third thing that happens is they have consistent income growth. Churches have consistent income growth, and, you know, logically, it doesn't take much, you know, to to figure out why, because young families generally are trending upwards in their income in their 20s and 30s and 40s. It just continues to go up. And then uh, the fourth thing that will naturally happen is seasoned Christians become invaluable mentors instead of consumers, okay? Unfortunately, in a lot of churches, the seasoned believers are still in consumer mode. They're not leading small groups and ministry teams. They don't have dozens of people calling them up to mentor them. Unfortunately, they're literally just attendees of a service, which is probably the most unfulfilling way to live out the gospel. Jesus said there's more blessing in giving than there is in receiving, Acts 20.35. Okay, so ultimately, in fact, seasoned Christians, they don't even care about the format of the church. They just want fruitfulness. They get addicted to what we call big or they get addicted to aprons over bibs. In other words, they take off consuming and they put on serving and it becomes more fun for everyone. And, and of course, when you fill up a church with, you know, with young converts, suddenly, you know, they all want mentors. They all want to be adopted by a spiritual mom and dad. And so, so all of a sudden, the reason why I'm sharing all of this is because the fourth behavior of a history-making church is this. History-making churches are always targeting the next generation to lead, especially the 4 to 14 window and the 18 to 21-year-old window, okay? So, in fact, actually, the most effective churches around the world, generally, what they'll do in their Sunday morning services is they'll allow the 18 to 21-year-olds to define the culture of the church service experience, okay? So, when I'm thinking about worship, I'm not thinking about what I like. Okay, and trust me, if you got to hear what I really liked, you guys would be like, I don't want to go to that church. But I I just, no, it's not even about me. It's about, I'm just thinking about 18 to 21-year-olds. What kind of music do they listen to? What kind of sermons do they, are they interested in hearing? What kinds of questions spiritually are they asking, okay? And then then in our kids' ministry, we're thinking about that 4 to 14 window, okay? You you get the idea is that we're, we're, we're not thinking about ourselves. We're trying to be missional, and because we're trying to be missional, it's resulting in fruitfulness in our church. That's why we had 500 people, even in the middle of our dead season this last summer, go through our newcomers luncheon, our newcomers dinner. You see, like history-making churches are always targeting the next generation to lead. And if you look at every major movement throughout history, they were, most of them were driven by young people. In fact, actually, Bible scholars even go right back to the 12 disciples. Bible scholars actually argue that when we read about them in the Gospels, not a single one of them, maybe except for the Apostle Peter, was over 25. All of them were 25 and under. They were, they were kids. It was kind of just like, you know, the TV show The Chosen. They were kids. In fact, Jesus was the oldest, you know, at 30. You get the idea. It was, it was kind of a youth movement. And, and think about or even the, the, the great reformation of the church in the 1500s with like Martin Luther. That was a college student movement. Heck, and the ark, what's interesting is, is, is we've helped plant 11, almost 1,100 churches over the past couple decades. Most of the planters are obviously younger, which is good because they're too naive to know how tough it is. 
You know what I'm saying, right? If some of us knew how hard having babies were, we would have been like, nope, no thank you. You know what I'm saying? Like, your naivety is your greatest strength, right? So, and, and so, okay, so now go back to the 4 to 14 window again, okay? So right here. Now, if this is true, that 85% of conversions happen in that 4 to 14 window, then there's naturally going to be certain models of church that are going to struggle with the Great Commission just based on their capacity to fulfill kids' ministry, okay? So, for example, I've done a lot with home churches all around the world. Uh, many of you guys know that I, I, I do a lot of the conferences that I've spoken at over the years have been in the Far East in Asia or in the Middle East. I've done a lot of work with planting churches in the Middle East in a lot of persecuted countries. And of course, a lot of these countries, they're forced to do home churches as their only option because legally, like in China, you can't have more than 50 people in a room unless, of course, you deny certain aspects of scripture. And, uh, you know, so they, they have to do home churches. But no matter where I go around the world, home churches always struggle with the same couple problems. A lot of times they, they get cultic very fast, right? Because it's a small group. It, like China has like the worst doctrine cult problem of any nation I've ever been to. I mean, just again, it's, it's, you get cloistered. They very rarely last longer than 10 years. They have very, very short shelf life. And then the, the biggest problem, in my opinion, is home churches tend to be an adult-centric model. Kids fall away from Christ very often. In fact, even after the, the giant home church movement of the 1980s, probably the greatest number of Christians conversion in, in anywhere in history in China, most of their kids fell away from Christ simply because, you know, if you're the only 13 year old in a church and you, you feel like the only 13 year old Christian on planet earth, guess what? You're going to struggle. You know what I'm saying? Which is exactly what happened, which is why the whole movement imploded. And, and again, think about it. If the number one statistical predictor of spiritual growth is how many Christian friends you have in any given moment, and you feel like you're the only 15 year old on Christian on earth, guess what? You're going to struggle. Now, What's interesting is in the United States, so in a, in a Western democracy, uh, larger churches have tended to dominate kids' ministry and evangelism for the last 30 years. In fact, actually in the United States, almost the vast majority of evangelism in the United States has taken, church, or has taken place in churches that are quite large. And I would say that that's related to the kids' ministry stat. Uh, but, but again, megachurches have tended to have the exact opposite problem. They have a flaw as well. So all models have a flaw, okay? All models have pros and cons to them. You see, megachurches tend to be better at uh, kids' ministry and evangelism, again, assuming it is a Western democracy. In fact, the vast majority of church growth, again, in the last 30 years happened in, in mega mega churches, okay? Unfortunately, mega churches are, most of them don't do small groups, which is really, really sad, which makes them miserable at discipleship. And of course, you know, this was revealed in COVID. Uh, churches like ours that are large but also value small, we've weathered COVID very well, I, if I could say it. I mean, don't get me wrong, like every church, we went through the roller coaster of it all. But uh, we ended up, I mean, honestly, our income actually grew throughout COVID and our small group attendance was amazing throughout COVID. But a lot of the mega churches that did just big impersonal services, they all got hammered and many of them are still reeling. I mean, like most of those churches, the large churches that didn't have a very, very robust small group network are still, still running 60, 70% of their pre-COVID capacity. It's been a bloodbath for a lot.
lot of those churches. But I say this because there's, there's strengths and weaknesses to big and small, but, but here's where I'm going. A lot of us, we like to say, well, I like big or I like small, okay, which some of you, you've chosen the particular campus at Substance that you're at because you like the feel, you like the size, and some of our campuses are a little bit bigger than others. But of course, the data suggests this, okay? History-making churches, and this is the fifth behavior, they're intentional about big and small. In other words, it's not either or, it's both and. If you want to be a history-making church, you, gotta ex- you, you have to try to put yourself into a position to experience both and. If I'm a pastor, I'm thinking about it. Even when I was small, we tried to affiliate and network with other churches so that I, like, heck, for the first couple years of our church, I sent my kids to another kids, to another church's kids ministry, you know what I'm saying? Just to get them extra stuff, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, but we have to be big, big and small. It's a both and model, and we see this in Scripture, okay? Let me just show you, Acts 2.46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, okay? So they're, they're being taught by the apostles. This was kind of their big event, so they were, it was a larger event, but they also broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number what? daily those who were being saved. They were a both and model. They were a big and small. It wasn't an either or proposition. Whenever I hear Christians say, well, I like big or I like small, I always like to remind them, listen, ultimately God doesn't give you a choice. And here's why. If you like small, well, you better pray for a church that never fulfills the Great Commission because sinners are going to screw it up. You're a person that then doesn't ever really have like room for for revival or if you're like a a person who likes big and personal so you can remain anonymous well the bible also tells us to confess our sins to other people so again at some point you're going to have to embrace the humility of intimacy regardless see at the end of the day big and small are just tools that we need to expose ourselves to and there's a there's a there's a big and a small in scripture that ultimately that God wants us to be a part of and that's why I always show, show people at substance we always have what we we call it the substance funnel and of course at the top of the funnel we could talk about social media we could talk about videos that we do this is where substance studios is is the tippy top of the funnel but then we have our weekend sp- experience here our, our Sunday services at all of our campuses we meet all over the place including in Monterey Mexico I, I, it's hilarious, the, the, the voice that just did my translation last week was so awesome. I, I sound so sexy in Spanish. The overdub, it's just like, oh man, can I just have that voice be my normal voice? Just like, you know, que onda, iglesia. You know, like it's, it's amazing. Um, but it's amazing that it works, right? It's amazing that it works. There's this big event. I call that top of the funnel experience. In fact, I call that, you know, like the old saying, uh, give a man a fish, he eats for a day. Teach a man to fish, he eats for a lifetime. Okay, so I, like top of the funnel is what I call give a man a fish discipleship. I get fed spiritually and then I feed you what I'm feeding. 
of what I'm eating, okay? I give you, out of my daily devotions, or my wife does as well, that, that's give a man a fish, but ultimately we want you to slide down the funnel into uh, small groups, and ultimately we want you to have what's called a space experience, it's S-P-A-C-E, it's five ingredients of biblical fellowship, and it's, we, we say same gender, prayer, accountability, and confession with people of equal passion. We want you to have intimacy to the point of where you could confess your sin in a group of same gender, prayer, accountability, and confession with people of equal passion. That you would have intimacy. That's give a man a fish, discipleship, or teach a man to fish. You get the fishing pole to experience life all week long, okay? So in other words, we're, we're a big and small model. But once you get to the bottom of the funnel and you find your tribe, you find your best friends, you find the people that you could do life with, who you can laugh with, cry with, go on vacation with, you can loan each other money, you can babysit each other's kids, okay? I don't want you ultimately, once you find that, to become a cloistered home church. I ultimately want you to go on mission and then you come back to our weekend experiences. You come back to the temple in order to recruit more people into your home. Does that make sense? In other words, you come back up to the top of the funnel, not to receive, not to be a consumer, not to wear a bib, but to put on an apron and to help other people get discipled, okay? So this, this process of down the funnel, back up to the top, down the funnel, I call that the revival cycle. Because when a church all of a sudden gets to the point where the majority of its church members are not coming to church to receive but to, to give, not, not that you're not receiving in this experience, but that ultimately you're, you're on mission as well. You're ranging through the foyer to help people, to serve people, to pray for people, to fast for people, to invite them over to your house, to disciple them, to get into the practical areas of their lives. You're, you're bringing it. That, that's called sustainable revival. And churches that have that kind of funnel end up being the churches that statistically end up making the biggest impact. And I, I say this because th this is also true in church history. I think the best example of this can be found in, in the Moravian movement, in the Methodist movement. The Methodist movement was birthed out of the Moravian movement. Moravians were German and Methodists were, were British, okay? Now, back in the mid-1700s, let me just do, do a little storytelling today, and I think you guys will love this. You'll love hearing this. There was this German, this little German church in a, a little city called Hernhut uh, that, that was called the Moravian Church, okay? This was just really, there was a, there was a, a count who lived there, Count Zinzendorf, and of course, after, after John Huss was burned at the stake, all of his followers came running. They were all refugees, and they all came to this, this count in, in Germany who had a refugee camp, and out of that refugee camp, it became like a church city, okay? It was kind of a beautiful little, uh, 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 like a, a persecuted refugee movement into Germany. And of course, this Count Zinzendorf was like, yeah, you can use my property. Let's, let's, let's have you guys all live here. It kind of turned into a commune and eventually a city and then eventually a church called the Moravian Church. Now, what, what made the Moravians very, very unique is that they were an innovative church. In fact, a lot of what we do today is a result of what happened in the Moravian Church, okay? Because the Moravian Church ended up creating three big innovations that have affected us all the way to this day, okay? They were the first church to actually integrate music 
as the driving force of a worship service, okay? So before, before the Moravians in the 1700s, most audiences did not participate much in a church service. They didn't sing as much. It was basically just a mass, okay? It was, it was sacraments. You came to go through a ritual, and at most, the participation was you would recite something in Latin after me, okay? So that was, it was basically, so the Moravians were like, no, let's, let's do what moves people. Let's get the music music in there. Let's kind of create an emotional arc to the service. And so they were the first to kind of build church services around the music, okay? So in some ways, it was like a contemporary worship music movement, not contemporary as like we would consider it, uh, but contemporary for them. The same thing could be argued with regards to their small group methodology, okay? In the 1700s, the Industrial Revolution was taking off, okay? So this factories were exploding everywhere. People were working in factories for, for insane hours a day. Kids were working in factories for insane hours a day. Before this, most kids grew up in the home hanging out with mom and dad learning the trade, okay? So if you, you wanted to know where you went to school, it was in the home. If you wanted to know where you worked, it was in the home. But now, this was the first time in history people had to commute to work, okay? So the Industrial Revolution essentially invented commuting, where people had to leave their homes to go to work. But the problem was, is in the midst of this, families were following, falling apart because they don't see each other anymore. Nobody, the, the kid doesn't know dad the same way. The, 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 even mom doesn't know the kids because they're all working in separate factories. And so what, what happened as, as society started to fall apart um, at the seam, at the family, you know, the church had to rise up and say, we need to do more with creating small groups like a surrogate family, okay? That was the small group movement. And the Moravians, what they did was they started creating small group funnels like this, except instead of calling it a space experience, they literally called it a choir, okay? I don't know why. Uh, or they also called it a band, like a rock band, but which, you know, it was a band of brothers, right? But I, I just, they, they called them choirs and bands. They wanted everyone to join a small group where they could confess their sin on a regular basis, get accountability, get prayer, which was kind of a novel thing for churches, but it was the correct solution at the time in, in light of everything that was going on in history. And then, of course, the third big innovation that the Moravians did is they wanted to, to, to surge missionary church planting. They wanted to become one of the greatest missionary church planting uh, churches in the world. In fact, they sent an, an incredible number of missionaries all around the world, but they, but they would do it by finding young people that were young, healthy, willing to travel anywhere, and they would send them, okay? Because shockingly, in those days, very few churches in Europe believed in missions or church planning or expansion or travel even, okay? So there's this famous story of, of a group of Moravians who were crossing the Atlantic on a ship. And in the 1700s, this is a, a rough way to travel, right? I mean, along the way on this ship, these, this Moravian mission team um, and the entire uh, ship got into this massive storm. It was so bad that, that most of the passengers on the ship were absolutely convinced they were going to die at sea. And of course, the Moravians were like, you know, no, we're on a mission trip. Our God is going to protect us, and God can protect you too. And they were like, I don't know. And so just to calm the entire ship down, the Moravians made the decision, here's what we're going to do, is we're going to plan a worship service on the deck in the middle of this terrible storm, okay? 
And of course, most people were seasick, so they didn't want to be down below, but they also didn't want to be on the deck either. You know what I'm saying? But the Moravians were like, you know what? Let's just do a worship service right there on the deck. And so the, the Moravian mission team just started leading worship. And then, of course, all of the ship's passengers were kind of standing around the perimeters just watching like, you guys are crazy. And they were singing, and of course, as they were singing, along came a giant wave, and the whole ship dove into the well of this wave. I mean, it was like a roller coaster of like, like three-story, four-story high waves, and all of a sudden, the ship dives into this well, and everybody started screaming because all of a sudden, you could see this giant two-story wave, like a couple stories taller than the ship, came up over the ship, crashed down on the ship so hard that it split the sail. I mean, everybody thought they were going to be washed over the deck, and, and yet the Moravians did not miss a single note. They just worshipped like under Niagara Falls. You know what I'm saying? They just sang straight through this wave, and of course, uh, uh, like on that ship, there was a young man who was watching who didn't have the guts to go out there, but he was watching, and he was just totally blown away. And he, he looked at these Moravian Christians and thought, I don't, I don't know God like they do. I don't understand how in the world they have that much confidence in the Lord and how they worship through it all. And so that young man came running up to them after the storm had settled, and that young man ran up to them and said, how in the world did you guys keep worshiping through all of that? I was terrified. I couldn't even think, let alone sing. And he, and he said, I thought I was saved, but I, after seeing you guys and meeting you guys, I don't think I am. And like, tell me, what it, tell me more about your faith. And guess what? That young man who was asking those questions was a young man by the name of John Wesley, who ended up starting the Methodist movement, okay? After John got back to England, he recommitted his life to Christ, and he went to the Moravian church in Germany, and he just wanted to learn everything about how they did church. And of course, he vowed when he got back to England to just mainstream all of the principles that they had taught him. And, and of course, what ended up becoming, it's a movement that not only affected all of England, but really shaped the United States. I mean, a lot of people say that even our Constitution is related to the methodology of the Methodists and the Moravian Church and the values that, that, that went into all of it. Now, I haven't even shared the best part of the story yet because the coolest part of the story was not, you know, what happened to John Wesley. It was actually why the Moravians were even on that ship in the first place. Okay, get this. This is the coolest thing, okay? A couple of years before that little mission team was on that ship, there were two young men in the Moravian church named Johann uh, Dober and David Nitschmann. Okay, they were just two young German men who, who uh, had a heart for the Lord and wanted to do something great. They knew that God had put something on their heart to do something great, and they had heard a lot about the Danish West Indies, which is like modern-day Caribbean, okay, where a lot of you might vacation, right? So, so they were, but, but several of the islands were run by Denmark, okay? And uh, they had heard that the owners of some of these islands, that they were devout atheists, and then to make matters worse, a lot of these atheist slave masters refused to allow any missionaries on the Caribbean islands of St. Thomas or St. Croix. They just wouldn't, they, they, they had thousands of slaves on these islands, but they would not allow any freedom of religion. Um, they would not allow any, anybody who's a Christian on the island. In fact, one of them was so brazen, one of the slave masters even boasted. He said, even if a preacher gets shipwrecked, I will not let them stay on my island. 
In fact, I'll keep them in a separate hut, in basically like a little prison until somebody can pick them up. Like, I'm not even going to allow a single Christian on my island. Well, Johann Dober and David Nitschmann, they, they heard that story and they thought, how awful. Like, why, why are people so mean? You're like, what, what, there's got to be tens of thousands of slaves on those islands. I mean, who's going to tell them about God's love? Who's going to tell them about God's life? Who's going to give them hope? Who's ultimately going to set them free? And, and, and so they came to the conclusion that the only way that they're going to be able to share the gospel is if to get onto that island is if they would sell themselves into slavery. And guess what? That's what they did. They sold themselves into slavery, and in the money they got, they, they paid for their passage on that ship. And so this is a one-way ticket into slavery to the Danish West Indies in order to share Christ. And, and they, they prepped for a mission of the lifetime, and so they told all their friends and family, hey, I'm never going to see you again. I'll see you in heaven. But, but listen, I'll never be able to get off the island once I go. And so, um, and, and of course, you know, naturally, there were a lot of people like, are you sure this is God? Like, I, like you know, it just seems so extreme. It just, you know, there were, there were many people in the church that were, you know, they were horrified by the idea, and yet they also saw the gospel in that idea. I mean, come on, Christ gave his life for us. Why, why would we not give our lives for others? And they would just challenge people, hey, what do you really believe? Do you really believe the stakes are real? Like, if you do, you're going to live different. You're going to think different. You're going to spend your money different. You're going to, again, you're going to think differently. And so they, they decided to go through with it. And when, of course, they, they stepped onto the boat in, in Copenhagen, Denmark, and, of course, the church came up to actually see them off. I mean, and, and when they're getting onto that boat, I mean, they said their goodbyes. I mean, we're not going to see each other until heaven. And so as they got onto the boat, they were waving to the church that was standing on the shore. And, of course, half the crowd was cheering. The other half was crying, you know, questioning the wisdom of all of this. And, of course, they, they started to remove all the housing ropes and disconnecting the boat from the dock. And the dock is now separating from the city of Copenhagen. And as the ship pulled away, you know, they could see the boy still standing on the deck waving. And then the one boy could see half the crowd crying. And so he grabs his friend's hand, and he lifts it up in the air, and he just shouted. The, the last thing that they heard them say is this. May the lamb that was slain receive the rewards of his suffering. And then they repeated it. May the lamb that was slain receive the rewards of his suffering. And as they sailed off into the distance, they, everybody wept because they knew, they knew it was a death sentence. And yet that actually became, that statement became the, the cry of the Moravian church. It became almost like a cliche. They just kept saying, hey, the, may the lamb that was slain receive the rewards of his suffering. It was just something they would tell each other every single time they had to make a sacrifice for the gospel. Well, naturally, all of Denmark started talking about these boys. All of Germany started talking about these Moravian missionaries. I mean, just the scandal of it all. Selling yourselves into slavery, is that even... I mean, is that even wise? Even the Queen of Denmark heard the story. Like, who are these missionaries? What is this Moravian church? And who are these atheist slaveholders who are operating on my islands, right? Because they were the Danish West Indies. She was offended that, that there were even people that brazen. And of course, like, get this, it, it, it escalated into an international incident in those days, okay? When your queen is suddenly outraged about your little island, that's bad news for you, right? 
And uh, suddenly the atheist estate holders had international pressure uh, to allow these Moravians to be set free on the island and to allow them to have religious freedom to share uh, Christ on that island. And of course, that one particular slave uh, owner uh, was forced to allow them to be carpenters on the island. And let me tell you, the whole world responded to that, okay? I mean, the whole island responded within a couple decades. Those two guys ended up baptizing over 13,000 converts on that island. And so when Wesley met uh, the, the group on that ship, there were entire groups of Moravians who were going on mission trips to help build the church in the West Indies. And that's what impressed him most is, wow, you guys really live the gospel. In fact, David Nitschman, one of the two boys that sold themselves into slavery, he actually went on speaking tours with John Wesley all throughout the United States and helped spark the great awakening of the U.S., which is why we're here. I mean, our model of church, our, 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 like we are related to the revival that happened, the great awakening. But where did it start? Let's go there. Where did it start? It started by two young men saying, I don't want to live a self-centered life. I don't want to live for me. And guess what? That was one of the stories. When I read that story, I actually read that story shortly before I decided to plant substance. And I remember at the time, you know, I, to be honest, I wanted to move further south. <laughs> Just being fully honest, right? And then the Lord was like, no, I got a place for you. I want you to move north. I want you to, to pay 100 grand more for a downgrade in house. But trust me, it'll be worth it. And at the time, it was very counterintuitive. I had some friends that thought it was kind of a bad decision, you know, in light of everything. And yet I knew that I knew that I knew that God was calling me to do it. And I had to ask myself the same question that John Wesley had to have asked on that ship. And it was this, hey, what kind of Christian do I want to be? What kind of church do I want to build? And I think the same question is for all of us. What kind of church do you want to build? What kind of Christian do you want to be. And I, one thing is for sure is that there's a lot of people here who are really dedicated to the gospel because there's no way we could have even gotten to this point in this short of time unless you guys were devoted. I, can we just give it up for all of the volunteers at our church that make this place work every single Sunday? It blows me away. You guys blow me away. All of you who lead small groups for our kids. I mean, we have all these like tween small groups now. I mean, we got, I mean, like all people that volunteer in the youth ministry. Oh, bless your hearts. You, like, I'm just saying. All, like, but, but really all of you small group and ministry team leaders, I, I just, it really blows me away how many dynamic leaders we have here at Substance. Many of you guys know that um, two times a year we always do a, a, a campaign called Heart for the House. And uh, really, usually during Heart for the House, it's just an opportunity for me to share the vision of our church and kind of where we're going. I usually do like some sort of state of the church address and then, uh, you know, I'll, I'll usually cast vision to the church, let everybody know what campuses we're launching and then we do an offering, right? But uh, so two weeks ago, whenever we go into Heart for the House season, I always like to test drive my vision just to see if it works, you know what I'm saying? And if everybody was like, that's really lame, then I modify it. Uh, no, I, I, you get the idea. I like to just, you know, I, I pull my leaders together and I have them give me feedback on it and stuff. And so I was sharing the vision a couple weeks ago um, with all of our small group and ministry team leaders. And uh, I was just kind of letting them know, hey, this is what we're doing with West Side, like the West Side property. This is, we're dreaming about our East Side location. This is what we've been doing in Mexico. This is what we've been doing. And in, in just all over the world, I was sharing just different stuff. And, uh, 
And of course, uh, you know, what was funny was, get this, I mean, we, hadn't, we haven't even done our offering yet for Heart for the House, but our leaders alone pledged $585,000. Think about that. Five, I mean, like, when I heard that number, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, that's, like, that's, what, that's incredible. I walked away feeling just so overwhelmed. Like, I love our leaders. I love our small group leaders. I love, there's so many committed people here that I just, I walked away feeling so encouraged. Like, we are going to be a history-making church. You know what I'm saying? We are going to be a movement. In fact, actually, I, I, I'm saying all this because this next Sunday, I'm going to be sharing a lot of it. And so you're not going to want to miss church because uh, we're actually doing a lot of really fun media stuff for this next week that you're going to love. Um, you're, I, I just I know you're going to freak out when you hear all that we're doing between Substance Studios this next year um, with music, film, but also just with our campuses and what we're dreaming about. Um, but I say this also just to say real quick, hey, listen, if, if you've never become an owner of the vision here or you've never become an owner of the church that you go to, I just want to say, hey, if, if this church means something to you, if your church means something to you, then, then just pray about getting more involved, even with your time, or even just with your soul, with your resources. And, and, and I, I just, like, obviously, in the coming weeks, we are going to do our Heart for the House offering this week and next week, but I just want you guys to even just, just pray about being involved in it, okay? And I know that some of you, you need to talk to your spouse about it. Um, or maybe you're, you're like, I need to talk to my future spouse. Can I find a spouse first? We, we got you. You know, God's got you. If you put the kingdom first and his righteousness, all these things will be added unto you, the Bible says. And I, obviously, you know, if, if there's no pressure to give in this offering, we don't do anything high pressure here. But I will give vision on a regular basis. And you want vision? You want vision for the gospel? One more time. Look at this right here. This is the moment that God allowed us to live. Right here, why, God, did you put me on earth in this, in this season? Don't miss the greatest harvest in human history. Don't let busyness, don't let comfort, don't let materialism get in the way of, of God's opportunity for you. And here's the deal. I'm not asking you to sell yourself into slavery. But I am asking you just to pray about how God would have you get involved. And so maybe you're here and you're like that young John Wesley where, you know what, the waves of life have reminded you that you haven't really found solid ground yet. I'm not asking you to set aside all of your questions, but I do believe that on Christ, he is our solid rock. And that if you would build your life on him and his word, all these things that, that, that people chase after, all of a sudden he'll just add it to you supernaturally. And so would you just close your eyes and, and just, I wanna end with this history-making prayer. Lord, what big adjustments do I need to make in order to join what you're doing. And it's really a simple question. So Father, we pray that right here and now. Lord, what big adjustments do we need to make in order to join what you're doing? And Lord, for some of us, that's time. We need to simplify our lives. For others of us, it's financial. For others of us, it's just emotional. Lord, we've been hurt through intimacy and we're kind of gun shy about jumping back in to intimacy. But God, I just pray over every single person that not only would they become more intimate with your word, and with your church, but ultimately with you, Lord, with your spirit. And that's what we do right here in this moment. We just say, we take a step closer to you, and I pray that we would just sense you taking a step closer to us as well. And church, if you're agreeing with what I'm praying, then repeat this. Say, dear Jesus, forgive me, renew me, and lead me, starting today, 
and for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. With all that said, we're going to have our campus pastors come on up and tell us where we're going to go next. Love you guys.